0: Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. and Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom The man who gains understanding. Holy Father, we are grateful that this morning, this Lord's Day, we get to physically actually be here together. And we bless You for the health and the opportunity. We pray You'd be with all those who are not able to come and for all our brothers and sisters in states where what we are doing today is not yet even possible for them. And we come in humility and ask that Your truth would be implanted in our hearts. Lord Jesus, You said sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. And so as we read it and meditate on it and study Your Word, may You speak to each and every one of us. Lord Jesus, You've given us a table that we are to remember You at. And so as we come to that table this morning, may our hearts be prepared. May we participate in a way that's pleasing to you. You've called us to be your slaves, to be servants of the living God. But you've called us to live out this slavery in dependence on the Spirit and in clean lives. So teach us today what that means. I pray that you would speak through me, Holy Spirit, that you would help me and empower me and anoint me and be with all those who are listening here or even in some other part of the world. We ask it in Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 13. If you are with us for the first time, we've been in a series in the life and times of Elijah the prophet, but this morning, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I want us to look at John chapter 13. Now, if you're a visitor, this church believes that the Bible was written by men, but authored by God himself. Every single word is inspired in the text, not just the concepts or the ideas, but the very words. And so Jesus taught that inspiration went down to the smallest letter in the smallest stroke of a pen. And so that's why we teach the Bible expositionally, verse by verse, word by word, because that's what God has said to do. And that's what He has modeled for us within the Scriptures as to how we are to teach His holy, inspired Word. And the more you see the Bible taught in that fashion, you come to the conclusion no man could have ever written this book. You begin to see the wonder of the inspiration of Scripture, and it really begins to change your life. Now, when we come to John chapter 13, we come to an unusual event that we've read so very often, I think we've heard so much, that sometimes we miss the wonder of these verses, So I hope this morning that God will shock you, He'll startle you, He'll shake you with the truths that are found in this text. Now before we read our passage and look into the specifics, let me just remind you of the context. If you read through the gospel of John, you see that there are three divisions to it. In chapters 1 through 12, you have the signs of the Son of Man. And so there are seven miracles that John highlights in his gospel, five that are found only in the gospel of John. But with each of the miracles, they are a miracle with a message. And he said at the end of his letter, many other things Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and believing you might find life in his name. So one through 12 deal with the signs of the Son of Man. When you come to chapters 13 through 17, you deal with the secrets of the Son of Man, the secrets of the Savior. It's not a broad ministry. It is now just to his people. And then the third section, of course, is the supremacy of Christ seen in his death, burial, and resurrection. So we're in that middle section that starts in chapter 13. And you really turn a corner when you come to John chapter 13. Because when you come to this chapter, the public ministry of Christ is over. He's no longer speaking to crowds, only to his men. And the few words that he does speak are very limited as he goes through six different trials. Now, I thought as we remembered the Lord at his table this morning, that this would be an appropriate passage because this passage really gives us some details as to how the table was given. And of course, the Apostle Paul said that when we come to the table, a man is to examine himself so that he can eat of the bread and drink of the cup. God wants you to eat and drink of the cup this morning, but he warns that you are not to eat and drink in an unworthy fashion, otherwise you drink God's judgment or discipline on yourself. So while these are symbols, they are symbols of great importance, and we are not to flippantly come to the table of the Lord. So with that said, let's begin by reading our passage. If you didn't bring a Bible, the words of Scripture are on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, you should come to one of our Meet the Pastors because you will be given a nice Bible. John 13, beginning now in verse 1, now, before the Feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end, during supper. The devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot the son of Simon to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments and taking the towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he was bathed. Needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who is betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, "'You also ought to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. If you are a guest, there is an outline.' That you can print out online. And if you're here for the first time, there in your bulletin, you will find the skeletal outline that you can hide, uh, that you can hang the meat on. Very, very simple outline this morning. Just two points. The first concerns a demonstration of servanthood. I want us to begin by considering a demonstration. Of servanthood. Look again very carefully at verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. So John notes that this takes place, this meal, before the feast of the Passover. It's Thursday night on God's calendar. The Passover lambs are going to be sacrificed the very next day. The very next day when the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world is going to die on our behalf. But since a Jewish day goes from sundown to sundown, technically they are celebrating the feast of the Passover. And those who maybe are new to the Bible and you're not familiar with Passover, there are seven feasts that God outlined in the Old Testament through Moses that the Jewish people were to follow, four that happened in the first coming of Christ, three that will be fulfilled totally in His second coming, and Passover to the Jew is what, say, the 4th of July is to the American, It represented in their history, their liberty, their freedom from bondage after 400 years being in Egypt. If you remember, Pharaoh hardened his heart over and over and over again. God said, let my people go. And nine times over, he hardened his heart. He said, no, and God in return responded to him him, and he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so God, with the tenth and final plague, told the Jewish people, if you sprinkle the blood on the doorpost and on the lentil, and by the way, an Egyptian could do this as well, and some Egyptians did because the Scripture says that when they left Egypt, they went out with a mixed multitude, but in either case, uh, if you put the blood on the doorpost and on the lentil, when the destroyer came through the land, he would pass over your house, and the firstborn under that roof would be spared and protected. And so that's what Passover is all about. And, of course, Paul will write in his letter to the Corinthians, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. And they couldn't use any old lamb. It had to be a spotless lamb. And, of course, it prefigured the Lamb of God, Jesus, who knew no sin, who was without sin, who was perfect, the unblemished Lamb of God who would die for us. And so from this day on, they're going to celebrate a new supper, and it's called the Lord's table in Scripture. Sometimes we call it communion or the Eucharist, or, and usually people that call it by those latter two terms infuse more into it than the Scripture actually represents of it. But it's called the Lord's table. It's also called the Lord's supper. Those are the two principal terms that God uses in the New Testament to describe this. Now, there's a chronological note. I hope you didn't miss it. It said that Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father. He knew his hour had come. In other words, he is the omniscient Son of God. What is going to happen in the next day or two is not going to take him by surprise. Now, remember, if you go all the way back to chapter 2 and verse 4, at the start of his ministry, Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. And that's a theme that's underscored throughout the gospel of John. In chapter 7 and in chapter 8, on two different occasions, the Jewish leadership tried to arrest Jesus, but they could not. And the Bible says, because his hour had not yet come. For instance, in chapter 7 and verse 30, we read, so they were seeking to seize him, And no man could lay his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And again, in chapter 8, in verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. But now the dreadful hour had come, the hour where he would literally sweat blood as the minute capillaries under his skin began to burst there in the Garden of Gethsemane called hematodrosis, as he thought about the cup and the sin that would come upon the sinless Son of God. It literally made him sweat blood. It made him sweat blood as he thought about the broken fellowship that he would know for the first time in a perfect eternal relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit. But at this moment, he's not thinking about himself. John underscores he's thinking about his men. He loved his own to the end. He never stopped loving them. He never stopped thinking about them, even in his hour of need. And as you read the chapters to follow, you will see his love, you will see his service, you will see his sermons, and ultimately his sacrificial death, his substitutionary death on the cross, and his glorious resurrection. We learn now in verse 2, during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot the son of Simon to betray him. The devil put the thought in the mind or the heart of Judas Iscariot, and he bit on it. Now, the devil can't make you do anything. You have to choose to cooperate with the evil one. And Judas, because he's driven by greed, among other things, listens to the promptings of the evil one He's not a puppet. He is making choices in his own heart and mind under the hand of a sovereign God. And so, the devil and Judas entered into a conspiracy of evil that, of course, is going to ultimately bring Jesus to the cross. Now look more closely here at verses 3 and 4, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Let me interpret for just a moment uh, why it is, or ask a question would be better said, why it is that he is even bringing this detail. I mean, why bring in Jesus's resume for a very important purpose? He's reminding us he came from the Father, he left heaven, became a man, and he's going back to the Father. Why would he underscore that right now? Because of what is going to follow that God in human flesh is going to initiate a profound act of servanthood. Look at verse 4. He tells us further that he got up from supper which as you read the Synoptic Gospels, supper is about finished based on what we read there. And again, he is going to introduce in just a moment the Lord's Supper, but he can't introduce it until Judas is gone because the Lord's Supper is for believers only. So he got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking the towel, he girded himself. Jesus was fully aware of his future. Where he'd come from? Where he was going and what he is about to do. And so the Lord of glory, who is the creator of a hundred billion galaxies, is going to get down on his knees and he's gonna wash feet. Twenty-four feet. The one whom the Father had given all things into his hands, there is no one higher who has ever walked on the planet than the Lord Jesus. And yet he is going to, as Paul will say to the church in Philippi, make himself of no reputation. He took upon himself our humanity. And of course, as Paul will underscore there in Philippians 2, his greatest expression of servanthood is when he goes to the cross in our behalf. And so Jesus is going to seize this opportunity to instruct them about service, the kind of service that God wants us to do. Look at verse 5. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, most of you have seen the famous painting that Leonardo da Vinci did on The Last Supper, and most of you know it. It's totally inaccurate, not even close to being representative of what took place on this table. They would have been sitting on mats at a low table, Usually they would lean on their left elbow because most people were right-handed, and their feet would radiate out from that table. And it was a customary practice, as most of you know, that when you arrived at a dinner in someone's home, you needed to have your feet washed. And so here's Christ, here's his disciples, and this menial task that's usually done upon entrance into the home is not done. No one does it. You would have thought that the 12 would have initiated it, but they didn't. One disciple could have washed everyone's feet, or maybe they could have washed each other's feet as they were standing, or just their own feet, but they're really self-centered and they're very selfish. You say, how do you know that? Because of the parallel account. God tells us what's going on in their hearts and minds in conversation. You might want to put out next to verse 5, Luke 22, 24 to 27. Write that out in the margin, Luke 22, 24 through 27. And if you want to just turn back a couple of pages in your Bible to Luke chapter 22, you're not far away from it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, the book right before John. Luke 22, if you look at verse 14, it says... um, when the hour had come, just to give you the context, when the hour had come, the hour we've been talking about, leading to the crucifixion, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. That's what we're reading here in John 13. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until the, it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And that spurs a discussion. The kingdom of God, that leads them into a discussion. And so pick it up in verse 24. And there arose also a dispute. The Greek word is used of a verbal dispute. There arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you shall become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. In the world's eyes, the big shot is the guy who reclines at table and he gets waited on, but not in Jesus' economy. And so in this context, these guys are quarreling about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And it's there that Jesus lays aside his outer garments. He would have taken off his outer robe and his belt, and he would have had on a tunic, like a servant who is getting ready to go to work. And just doing that, what he is about to do is he gets this basin filled with water and he girds himself with a towel. It is a sharp rebuke to the discussion these men are having. Now, most of you know in ancient Israel, when you went to someone's house for dinner, just like today, you you clean up. So you would typically have a bath before you left, and then you'd walk to the appointed house. And again, this is not any ordinary everyday dinner. This is Passover. This is a celebration. He had given them instructions of where it would be and how to prepare for it and all that. This is a big deal. And so after you took your bath and you would walk to your guest's home, you were either walking on dusty roads and your feet would be dirty by the time you got there, or if it was rainy season and there was a lot of rain even at this time of year in Israel when it takes place, then your feet would be covered in mud, either deep in dust or liquid mud. And so Jesus takes an opportunity to end their argument, to instruct them about what real, humble, true servanthood is like. So he approaches the first disciple to wash his feet. He removes their sandals, he washes the dirt off, he dries it, and he he does a number of men. And you know there's a sudden hush, there's an embarrassment in the room that the Lord of glory is doing this. No one says anything until, of course, he comes to Simon Peter. Look at verse 6. So he came to Simon Peter... He said to him, Lord, Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, in English, we have ways of emphasizing things. We might underline it in red or use a highlighter or. um, uh. But in Greek, the way you emphasize things was word order. And so the word order here is very unusual. The word you and the word my are side by side. Most of the time when you read a verse with those two pronouns in it, you, you wouldn't structure it that way unless you want to underscore something, unless you want to hide, highlight something. su sumu, viptes, tus, pudus. Literally, Lord, you my wash the feet or paraphrase, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? No way. That's the sense behind it. And so Jesus responds in verse 7, Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter, what I'm about to do for you, you're not going to understand tonight, but you're going to understand hereafter. We've seen that word hereafter if you were with us in our series in the Revelation. Revelation 1:19, God gave us the outline for the book of Revelation. The things that are, the things that, the things that were, the things that are, and the things that will be after these things, ta. It's the same word, ta. He's saying, Peter, after these things, hereafter, later on, what I'm doing tonight, you're going to later grasp. Now, there's a lesson that we will see before we're done. They're going to get that night. But there's another lesson they're not going to get. Now, we can get it because we're reading it in hindsight and we have a full description. But Peter and the other apostles wouldn't get it until later on, until after the cross and until after the coming of the Holy Spirit who will indwell them and become their teacher, their illuminator of truth. And so he gets up. And he says to Peter, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And look at Peter's response in verse 8. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. It's ume, it's a double negative in Greek. You say a double negative in English cancels the other negative. That's true, but not in Greek. And so sometimes you will hear linguists so that there's no confusion say, this is a triple negative. That's the thought behind it. Never, absolutely, never, absolutely, no way are you ever going to wash my feet. That's the thought behind it. So instead of bowing to the Lord's will, Peter, in essence, says, with all due respect, no. Now, Peter, I'm sure, thought that what he was doing was a very noble thing. How can his Lord wash his feet? For in his mind, it's totally unacceptable that the Lord of glory would wash his feet. Peter believes, of course, that he's Lord. He fell in worship when he stilled the storm. Who do men say that I am? You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He knew who Jesus was, and for the Lord of glory to wash his feet. No. By the way, just let me regress here for a moment. There's a principle here about humble service. True humility is not only the giving of service, but also the receiving of service. Some people, because of pride, they won't receive service from someone else. And we need to be willing to receive service. That's another expression of humility. And so Peter says, never shall you wash my feet. His words are very forceful. And Jesus comes back just as forcefully. Jesus answered him, notice, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, we're going to see in just a moment that when you come to verse 10, Jesus is speaking literally and symbolically, emblematically. He is going to use this whole experience to teach some spiritual truth. He is going to speak about being washed. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And by the way, there's only one who can save you, and his name is Jesus. You cannot save yourself. And so notice Psalm, just as impulsively, Peter now swings to the other end of the spectrum here in verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Before, Peter wanted to tell the Lord what he could and couldn't do. And now he tells the Lord how things ought to be done. And we may laugh about Peter, but there's a lot of Peter in all of us. And sometimes people make fun of Peter like he's an idiot. He's no idiot. He's a godly, spiritual man, and I'm sick of the jokes pastors have made over this guy. There was a reason the Lord put him in the inner circle and made him a leader of leaders. Lord, then wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head. Wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my. i will take a bath. And Jesus replies, Peter, you don't need a bath. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Now, again, the imagery of the setting would have been understood by any first century reader. As you walk through Jerusalem, there were some cobblestone streets. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, you can walk on some first-century roads that go all the way back to the time of Christ. They're built pretty well to last that long. But most of the roads are dirt. And so, again, you're either walking in heavy dust or in liquid mud. And so the custom is that when you arrived at a home, your feet were to be clean. Usually, you'd either wash your own feet, or sometimes when a husband, Josephus writes, would come home from work, his wife, as an expression of her love, would wash her husband's feet. Sometimes children would wash the father's feet, and they would certainly typically wash their own. But the point is, is when you came over to a guest home for a dinner, and someone did not wash your feet, either the host, or in many occasions, if you were wealthy and you had some employed people, that person would do it. Or if you were a Roman and you owned slaves, or if you were a Jew and had been assigned slaves, remember, there's 60 million people who were in slavery during the Roman Empire. God never puts a stamp of approval on slavery. But understand that when they conquered a nation, They didn't put everyone in prison, but those families, those people were assigned to other Roman citizens. You could be a doctor slave. You could be a teacher slave, all kinds of different types of slaves in the first century. You could be a Christian and Rome assigned you a slave. And that's why Paul does this interaction about how you as a Christian, if you are a master, are to treat a fellow brother, and how you, if you are a slave and you have a Christian master, you're to respect that brother. So you see that kind of interaction. Of course, God is going to blow up slavery through the preaching of the gospel, and it's not that much further before it's gone. So you would either have, you'd wash your own feet. The wife might do her husband's. You might do your own feet. The children would wash their own. The children would sometimes wash the parents' feet. If you had a hired hand, he might wash the feet. Or if you had a slave, that person would wash the feet. But to go into a home and not wash the, the, the feet of a guest was a breach of hospitality. And that's why Jesus, remember, he's in the home of Simon the Pharisee, and in Luke 7, Jesus said, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And so when you come to someone's home, again, your feet were done. But on this occasion, no one's feet were clean. They were all soiled. And it's in the course of this argument about who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom. They're fighting for thrones, but no one is wrestling for the towel. They're arguing about who's gonna be the greatest, and Jesus just silences them all when he gets up. Now, it's in this context that Jesus is gonna teach a lesson that they're gonna get meta-tata hereafter, later on. And it's a lesson about a cleansed life. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to him, to Peter, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you're clean, but not all of you. Now, as you read through verses 10 and 11, it becomes apparent that there are two baths, two washings, two kinds of cleansings that God is describing. One is a forever bath, and the other is what we might call a daily foot bath. You see that word bathed? If you're using the old King James, it uses the word washed. Remember, when they did the King James in 1611, even in the preface, it's interesting to read the original preface that came in the 1611a edition, and they put that out and made it available on the 400th anniversary of the King James. But the translators said, you know, we're challenged in our knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, and we're certain that uh, as time progresses that this translation will become more precise. In fact, as soon as they put out the 1611, six months later, the 1611b came out with a number of changes, and then another in 1613 and 1638. And today, if you're using the old King James, you're using the fifth revision of the King James. But in the New King James, which would really be the sixth edition, like the New American Standard, they distinguish between two words, And so it's, uh, the first word is bathed. And it refers in Koine Greek to a total bath. You go into someone's house, you take a total bath. You take a shower, we'd say today. That's the first word. The second word that is used is used to describe a part of your body. It's the word wash, where a part of your body is washed. And so spiritually speaking, Peter says, Lord, never shall you wash my feet. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Oh, then I wash my hands, my head, my, I'll take a whole bath. Jesus said, no, he who's bathed needs only to have his feet clean. But not all of you have been bathed. Not all of you are clean. So even if you didn't read Greek, you can figure it out from the context. Don't ever be intimidated because someone knows Greek, like they've got some insight that you don't. Look, if all I read was my English text for my whole life, I wouldn't even scratch the surface. Greek typically does not settle anything, but it does confirm what your thoughts are. And so if you put these two verses together, it becomes clear that he's speaking not just literally, but symbolically, emblematically. Again, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet but it's completely clean, and you are clean, Peter, but not all of you. Verse 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. And so the bath symbolized salvation's bath, and Judas had not had that bath. Yet Judas had his feet clean that day, all of them did. But that was, again, insignificant in terms of what it would mean to him. You can go through outward ritual and have no inward reality. And Jesus is going to talk about the outward ritual of feet cleaning and what it means for us spiritually today. And so Judas goes through the outward ritual, and there are people today who have had all kinds of outward rituals. They've been baptized. They've joined a church. They've been confirmed. They're given an office in the local assembly, but they've never been saved. Some people think that unless they're participating in the Eucharist in a regular way, they're in deep trouble. This COVID thing has been a turmoil for Roman Catholics. Look, I've missed sharing the Lord's table, and that's why I thought in my own mind the first week we meet back, we'll have the Lord's Supper together because it's been three months. But the Scripture doesn't say you have to have it every week. It says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Some churches do it every week, and I'm not necessarily opposed to that. I just think it typically becomes something you just tack on the end of a service, and its significance can easily be lost. Some churches do it once a year. Some do it quarterly. We do it typically once a month. But the outward participation in the Lord's Sable does not give you any life, as our dear Catholic friends teach. It's important. It's an act of obedience but it doesn't give you eternal life. So there are people who go through outward rituals, baptism, the Eucharist, as they will call it, following the Ten Commandments, the golden rule, but those things cannot impart life. So you got to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So both the bath and the washing here, it speaks of making you clean in one sense. One is a bath of regeneration. The other is a bath of... Restoration. In other words, Peter, you've been saved, you've been cleaned. You're a true believer in me. We call that justification in the New Testament. Justification is an important word that every Christian should know. It does not mean just as if you never sinned, it could equally be defined just as if you had always obeyed. Justification, as we discussed on Wednesday night, if you were with us, is not a process, it's an act. It's imputed to your account. God credits you with the righteousness of Christ. If you want to go to heaven, you need to be as righteous and as holy as God. And there's nothing that you can do in your soiled life to get that righteousness. It is the gift of God. And so justification is where God doesn't make you righteous, but he declares you righteous. He not only wipes the slate clean, but he credits Christ's righteousness to your account. And he does it on the basis of Christ's blood. John will write and uh, record in Christ's letter to the seven churches that he praises him who loved us and released us, Revelation 1.5, from our sins, how? By his blood. And so the first bath, where you're made clean all over, so to speak, is the bath of regeneration. And again, if you were here on Wednesday night live streaming with us, We studied a very important verse in Titus 3 and verse 5 where Paul says he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And so we examine that passage of Scripture before you're saved, because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. The Spirit of God works on your life. He convicts you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He opens your eyes, and unless He opens your eyes, you'll never believe. But He convicts the world. There are some people, I think they're wrong. They say you're born again, you're regenerated before you believe. That's not true. The Scripture is very clear. You're declared righteous, your sins are forgiven, and then the Spirit of God is implanted in your life. On you hearing the gospel of your salvation, having believed, Paul will write in Ephesians 1, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you hear the message, you believe the message, and you receive the Holy Spirit. That's called regeneration, where God makes you a new creature. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. His old life has passed away, a new life has started. That's the bath of regeneration, salvation's bath. But there's also the bath of restoration. In other words, as you walk through this world as a saved person, your feet get dirty. Just as like Peter didn't need another bath, he had already had a bath. He had had salvation's bath, but he needed to have his feet cleaned. And as you walk through the world, sometimes you need to have your feet cleaned. So there's what we call positional forgiveness and what the New Testament calls experiential forgiveness. Positional forgiveness would be like Colossians 1. Let me read that. Or Colossians 2.13. Colossians 1 as well. But in Colossians 2, it says, and when you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, basically before you're saved without going into a lot of explanation, he, God, made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us of all of our transgressions having canceled out their certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us and is taking it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This is a picture of our forgiveness. The certificate of debt was a formal instrument that would be placed outside the home of someone who is under house arrest or outside the door of a Roman prison and on it was your crime and what was needed for your crime to be paid. And when your crime was paid, they would take off your certificate of debt and they would write on it with the Roman imprimatur stamped on it the word that Jesus shouted on the cross to tell us die. We translated it as finished. It was used in financial areas in the first century. In 1961, a first century tax office was dug up where they found these ancient tax receipts dating back to the day of Christ were next to the name of each individual who paid their tax. They wrote the word tetelestai. That's what they wrote on the certificate of debt. Paid in full, it is finished. And so if you were ever rearrested in the Roman Empire, you could never be tried again. Why? Because your certificate of debt proved That it had been paid in full. Well, Paul says God's law condemned us. There were decrees that showed us that we were guilty. That's the function of the law, not to justify, but to terrify. You look into the mirror of God's law and you see the filth on your soul. And so you flee to Christ, and he has taken your certificate of debt. He's nailed it to his cross. He's paid it in full. That's salvation's bath. The one who has been cleaned has justification. But beyond that, there's experiential forgiveness. And that's what Jesus is teaching these men, that they would not get that night, but they would get later on. John writes about it in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9, in the context, it has nothing to do with getting saved. It has everything to do with the need for a believer who is saved to confess. In other words, John says in the opening verses, I'm writing these things to you that you might have fellowship with us. And our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son. And he reminds us that if we're going to have fellowship, closeness, intimacy with God, then we must walk in the light as he is in the light. But if we fail, if we sin, if we get our feet dirty, then our responsibility is to confess. Not to presume on God's grace. He will say, my little children, I'm writing these things to you, that you may not sin. I'm not giving you 1 John 1, 9 so you can go out and sin and say, I'll just confess it. No, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who himself is a propitiatory sacrifice for our sins. So neither John nor Jesus is teaching that the act of just confessing your sin will get you to heaven. That's what a lot of people think. Some people, you ask them why God should let them into heaven or on what basis, and they list works. Well, confession in one sense is a work, but sometimes those who maybe are a little more spiritual, but you can be close, but close doesn't make it. Jesus said to one man by his answer, he said, you're close to the kingdom of God, which means some are closer to conversion than others, but close won't make it. You've got to cross into the kingdom. So you ask some people why or how God should let them into heaven, and they say, well, you know, you just confess your sins, and if you're sorry, God will forgive you. If that were true then Christ never would have had to have gone to the cross. He could have just said, confess your sins. He could have bypassed the crucifixion and gone directly to the ascension. So 1 John 1.9 is not teaching us how to establish a relationship with God. And sometimes the evangelists have falsely used it. No, it's written to save people, the little ones. My children, John will say. Who already have met the Lord, and it's not to establish a relationship, but to maintain your fellowship. Listen, he was cleaned; he was bathed. Doesn't need another bath. In other words, once bathed, always bathed. Once saved, always saved. But when you walk through this world, because we all stumble in many ways, you get your feet dirty. And to maintain that closeness with God, that's where confession comes in for the believer. And the sensitive, growing believer doesn't let sin pile up in his heart. He deals with it. And as you grow in Christ, you become more and more sensitive. It's like you get a piece of dirt in your eye and it just drives you crazy until you get that grain of sand out of there. And the same is true with sin, So he's talking about having your spiritual feet clean. And if you don't have clean spiritual feet, you'll be apathetic. You may even serve, but not in the power of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit doesn't fill a dirty feet person, only someone who's maintaining clean feet. All right, so that's the demonstration of servanthood. You're going to serve. There's a certain way to do it. Because if you just serve out of a dirty heart, when you meet Christ at the judgment seat of the just, we call it the Bema seat of Christ, your works will be wood, hay, and stubble when tested with fire. But now he goes on and he gives a declaration of servanthood. And this is something they were going to get this night Is obvious from the verses that follow. So first he gives the example in this section. Then he gives the exhortation. First, He does the deed, and then he gives the disclosure of that deed. Look now, if you will, at verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? So after putting on his outer garment again and having returned to the table, do you know what I've done to you? All is finished. They all got sparkling, clean, refreshed feet. Do you know what I've done to you? Do you understand the significance of what I just did? And you can almost feel the silence in the room, maybe except for Judas, who would be filled with a sense of betrayal and shame. And so the Lord says, do you understand? One truth you're going to get later on, but do you understand what I've done? And there's going to be an application for them tonight. And again, the two sections are related because you can serve and you can serve with dirty feet. And people who serve with dirty feet are usually grumblers, they are always finding fault with the church and what we're doing wrong and what we can do better because they're out of fellowship with God. That's what grumblers do. That's what people who are walking around with dirty feet do. Or they, or they just don't serve anywhere. They don't really serve in the local assembly as God commands them to do. So Jesus says... Notice verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. You call me teacher, didaskalon. That's the title of respect that you would give to a rabbi. And you call me hakurios, literally the Lord. It's a term here of Deity. You call me teacher and you call me God in human flesh, and you are absolutely right to describe me in those terms. Verse 14 If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Now, let me just say parenthetically the Lord here is not instituting a third ordinance. There are some churches that have three ordinances. They're a minority, but you maybe have been to one baptism the lord's table and foot washing and they see three ordinances but there is two reasons historically why Christians have only affirmed two ordinances now i know in the sacramental system of roman catholicism there's seven and they're not even ordinances they call them sacraments because there's an entirely different meaning behind the word sacrament and ordinance ordinance affirms a symbol a sacrament teaches that grace is inferred. And so in Catholicism, when you go through the sacraments, grace is given to you through the sacramental system, which by you do good works, by which you merit salvation. So it's a grace plus a work system of righteousness, totally contrary, totally made up, not even close to what the Word of God says. But amongst evangelicals, There are some who would say, well, we have the Lord's Supper, we have baptism, and we have the ordinance of foot washing. But there are several reasons why that most have not seen this as an ordinance. Number one, if it was an ordinance, then you would expect it to be practiced in a formal way in the local assembly in the book of Acts, but there's no such record. Or you would expect it to be commanded in the epistles like the Lord's Supper is but there's no such command. And it's not until nearly 500 years after the ascension of Christ that some Christians come up with the bright idea that this is the third ordinance. And the verse that they used was 1 Timothy 5 and verse 10. If you know that section of Scripture, Jesus talks about caring for your own. You know, if you don't care for your own, you're worse than an unbeliever. And of course, in the context, he's not talking about a dad caring for his children. That's a legitimate application. But he's looking upward of a child caring for his parents. He said, when you were little kids, they took care of you. Now that they're old, you're to make sure they're taken care of. And of course, there were some whom Paul describes as widows indeed. He said, who should the church take care of who's a widow indeed? And by a widow indeed, number one, they couldn't have children or grandchildren who could step up to the plate. So if they had children or grandchildren, it was the responsibility of the children or the grandchildren to take care of those needs. But he said, you don't put just any widow on the list. All of a sudden, a lady's a widow. Hey, man, the church's freebies over there. No, he said, there has to be a certain lifestyle of faithfulness for the church to put them on the list. And so he mentions, among other things, that they have washed the saints' feet. Now, that could be literal, certainly it would be, but I think it could also be metaphorical here. In other words, they were servants. They weren't freeloaders, they were servants. They dug in, they cared for the saints in humble service. But secondly, most do not take this as an ordinance. And again, there are some churches where they have senior clergy, wash the feet of junior clergy, and typically that is done on what we call Monday-Thursday. And I suppose uh, there's ne- nothing technically wrong with that. If you were to attend a church and on Monday-Thursday, they had a foot-washing service to maybe teach the biblical truth behind John 13, but I've never been to a foot-washing service where they even mentioned John 13 because it says too much for their theological systems. But the truth is, is that Jesus is not giving us an ordinance. He's not giving us a command here. You ought to circle the word example. He gave us an example. This is not a mandate. This is a model. And it's example here in verse 15. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. In other words, there are thousands of ways in which the example I'm giving you tonight of washing feet could be carried out in the local church. That's Paul's point, I think, in reference to the widows. And so while we may not have dirty feet in the same pattern they had in the first century, there are opportunities everywhere for humble service. So the Lord Jesus said, I have given you an example, not that you should do exactly what I've done, but you should do as I've done. The word as, you should circle that. It's the word kathos. It means like as. Jesus is not saying do the exact same thing. He's saying do it in the same manner. And so the act of Foot washing is an example of all kinds of self-denying acts of service. And so when he tells them they ought to wash one another's feet, he's reminding these apostles that there's nothing too menial for them to do. I mean, here's the Lord of glory who spoke 100 billion galaxies into existence, and he's washing 24 feet that day. Even Judas's, you know, he loved Judas. Judas could have repented, but he had already crossed the line that he could not cross back over. He could have repented and God would have raised up someone else. Judas is used of God, but not as a puppet. God uses his sin just like God uses the sin of kings in pagan nations. And he describes one pagan king, he's my instrument to judge Israel. Verse 14, if I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. Now, you would expect it to read that way, would you? Wouldn't you expect it to read, if I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, then you ought to wash my feet. But that's not what he said. He said that we ought to wash one another's feet. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If the Lord of glory was willing to take a towel and wash dirty feet, then it seems totally reasonable that you and I ought to wash one another's feet. Christ takes the lowest place. He takes the place of a servant. And I would ask you this morning, are you willing to lay aside your dignity and your pride, and to take the place of a servant. Verse 16, truly, truly, amen, amen, literally. Amen, amen. Don't miss what I'm going to say. I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Now, that's a truth that is echoed through the Gospels. A slave is not greater than his master, he will apply that in John 15 to persecution. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Why? Because the slave is not greater than his master. In Matthew 10, he's going to apply it to discipleship or uh, to slander. And in, in Luke 6, he'll apply it to discipleship. So don't miss the meaning of the saying in this context. A slave cannot evaluate his master's will. He does what the master says. That's the way it works. And if the master performs a menial task, then you and I as Christ's slaves ought to be willing to do that one towards another. If I, the master and the sender, took on the role of a slave, then you as my servants ought to do the same. Nothing is beneath you. And years later, when Peter writes his first epistle, he'll write in 1 Peter 5.5, And all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the, uh, the, the humble. And the verb there, clothe yourselves, one word in the original, was used in the first century of a servant who would tie the knot of an apron to go to work. Tie on humility and no doubt this is burned into Peter's mind and the Spirit of God had him use that particular verb because of what happened this night in the upper room. Now notice how Jesus concludes in verse 17. If you know these things, and it's constructed in Greek meaning you do know them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. In other words, just knowing these things will not bless you. There's a lot of formal religious piety where a man can say amen to what the preacher's preaching and then do nothing with it. And Jesus said, you're not just blessed in knowing these facts, you're blessed in doing them. Happiness does not consist in just the intellectual knowledge, but in the act of obedience. That's when the beatitude of blessing is lived out in your life. Now, how are we going to apply this? There are several applications we could make. First, let me just say Christ would like to wash, would like you to wash his feet today. Christ would like you today to wash his feet, but pride can prevent you. Let me ask you another question. If you could, would you like to wash the feet of the Lord Jesus today? Say, of course I would. Who wouldn't want to wash his feet? But that can't be done. Yes, it can. Jesus said, truly I say to you that whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you've done unto me. That's why on the Damascus Road when he meets Saul of Tarsus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul had never laid his hand on Christ, but to lay his hand on one of Christ's Members of his body was to lay his hand on him. And when you serve one of God's people, you are serving the living Lord. There are people in this congregation who need to have their feet washed and they need to humbly serve. That's the teaching of verse 14. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. If Jesus were physically here, we would line up to wash his feet, wouldn't we? Some big shot comes into town, and I see people come to church who want to meet the big shot Christian who you haven't seen in years. There's a lot of big shot, self serving, name grabbing Christianity in our day. You know, it makes God sick. But Jesus is saying to us, if I wash your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. And you know what you discover when you start serving in the body of Christ that some Christians have some really dirty, smelly feet. And that's the real test of our spirituality, to wash the feet of people who are unlike the Lord Jesus. By the way, that's one of the reasons we have ABFs. If you go to an adult Bible fellowship, the church will dramatically shrink. You'll get to know folks, and I know we're doing it Zoom because we have no other choice right now, but let me just say that you can Zoom in and get to know some people, but you discover that when you begin to be involved in an ABF, you get to learn people's names, and you know what else you learn? You learn people's needs. You learn needs in the body of Christ, and you can tie on the service apron and go to work, in caring for God's people. But again, as you do it, you're going to discover that some people have some really ungrateful, smelly, rotten feet. But is that not the way Christ found most of us? With some really nasty feet. But people served us. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, But to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And it's just pride that will prevent that from happening. So Peter says, All of you clothe yourself with humility. Why? Because God is opposed to the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And he's quoting the book of Proverbs it's pride that made the devil the devil. It's pride to be like God that brought about the original sin. It's pride that destroys friendships, that mars marriages, and that splits churches. And the antidote to pride is humble servanthood by grace. People who have known me 30 years, next month I will have been here, and my vision has never been buildings, budgets, and baptisms. God knows that my heart is for a people to become like Christ. And it starts by serving in his local church. And Christ wants you to wash his feet, and you can as you serve his people. Second, Jesus Christ wants to wash your feet today, and only pride will prevent him. He wants to wash your feet. I want you to imagine the Lord of glory physically, literally, bodily present here today and he gets a basin of water and he girds himself with a towel and he comes and he kneels right before your feet and he says to you, may I wash your feet? You say, Lord, never. Then you remember Peter's mistake. You say, yes, Lord, you can wash my feet. And suppose after he washes your feet, he said, will you wash my feet? Me? Wash your nailed scarred feet? It would be an honor. And you would probably wash them with your tears. Now put all imagination aside. The Lord Jesus is here today. Where two or three are gathering in his name, he is right here. He is present with us in a unique, special way. And whatever you do to the least of his brethren, you're doing to him. And it is only pride that will keep you from either having salvation's bath or having your feet washed. Some of you are listening to me, and you've never had salvation's bath. You have no assurance if this were your last moment on earth, that Jesus would take you to heaven. You think He might. You hope He will. And some of you listening have a false assurance. Listen, the bath of salvation comes through the blood of Christ. It's through the gospel, the power of God to save you, the death, burial, and resurrection. And if you are willing to admit that you are a bankrupt and call upon Jesus in faith, He'll save you today. It's a gift. Gifts are not earned. He will impute righteousness to you. He will justify you. You will have salvation's bath forever and ever and ever. But there are believers listening to me today, and your heart is just distant. In fact, some of you are glad that we have COVID because you don't have to get out of bed to come to church. And when you come, you have no plans of doing anything for anyone. It's because you're out of fellowship, and you have dirty feet, and today can be the first day of the rest of your life, and if you will confess your sins, he will be faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you. Look, if you've not had salvation's bath, and you die or Christ returns, and he's coming probably sooner than most of us realize, you will regret it for all of eternity, And if you are saved and you've been walking with dirty feet, when he comes, he'll take you to heaven, but you will shrink back in shame, and you will regret the things that are really important in life you didn't take upon yourself. Now, our Father, we thank you for amazing grace. The grace of God that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy and righteously in this present age. I pray today, Father, for someone listening to me who's really not sure of salvation or who have been trying to get to heaven some other way. Lord Jesus, you said you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father but through you not through the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule or baptism or membership, but only through you. You are the way. Thank you that you would become sin for us. You, the sinless Lamb of God at Passover, bore in your own body on the cross our sin, and you were declared Lord and sinless and able to make the payment when you were raised from the dead. So help someone to take you at your word that whosoever will may come. You said it's a trustworthy statement that deserves our full acceptance that you came into the world to save sinners. Help someone today to say, Lord Jesus, save me by your death and resurrection and change me, give me salvation's bath. Father, for someone else, as we come to your table, you told us not to come flippantly, but with clean feet. You said a man is to examine himself. So if there's someone that we've wronged that we need to make it right with, restitution that needs to be made, or just getting things clear between us and you, help us to take that sin to the throne. And thank you that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We love you, our Father. Thank you for the love that's been poured out in our hearts. Thank you that this church that is so diverse, that we have something the world is looking for and yearning for and can't find and will never find apart from Jesus. May we be quick this week to look for opportunities and to share him. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.